like my personality, you know, been shaped by this culture of hip hop. So the way that I talk, you know, if I'm, you know, chilling with my homeboys, you know, and the, the slang that we use, you know, is all, you know, a byproduct of what I've learned from hip hop, my posture, the way that I, you know, move or the way that I gesticulate, you know, um, just, you know, everything, the way that I walk, you know, it might be, you know, have a little bop to it or some swag or whatever. So all of this is shaped by hip hop. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. So today's episode is the story of a friendship. It's an unlikely story, both because we don't typically associate musicological research with the idea of friendship, and because of the very different statures of the two friends. Musicologist Mark Katz, who is John P. Barker, Distinguished Professor of Music at UNC Chapel Hill, and rapper Aleem Braxton, who is on death row in Central Prison in North Carolina and has been incarcerated since 1993. I'm going to keep this intro brief because pretty much everything you need to know about this episode is told in the episode itself. But I do want to say a few things up front. First, that Mark was my advisor for my dissertation and is a wonderful and generous scholar and mentor. Second, that though I had heard about and read about Aleem before, and listen to the great music he has recorded as Rome Alone, this conversation was the first time we had communicated directly. And finally, that there is a clear and emphatic difference of power and privilege between Mark and me and Aleem, as you can hear audibly in this episode because Aleem will periodically be cut off by the prison's phone system and need to call back. What you won't hear is that this episode almost didn't happen, because earlier this year, the prison began unconstitutionally limiting inmates' ability to speak with outside media, though fortunately this was resolved by the time we spoke in May. I think you will find this conversation deeply moving. It's about making hip-hop in prison, about the ethics of collaboration, and I think most importantly, about what friendship means. So I'd like to start with a somewhat simple question, although I know it's going to yield, uh, you know, a fairly complex answer, which is, how did the two of you become friends? Well, um, yes, it's kind of a lengthy story. I'll condense it to the best of my capability, but um, I saw Mark in a newspaper article in the local news and observer, and at the time, he was conducting a teaching project where he had producers that were teaching kids in the community how to make beats at the UNC Beat Lab. And it just so happened at that time is that I had been looking for someone who could put beats to my acapella vocals. Um, I had connected with um, a person named Michael Betts, who is also a good friend of mine now, who is an um, assistant professor at UNC Wilmington, and he was recording my acapella lyrics over the phone, 
and posting them on SoundCloud. And several people had, you know, been commenting that they liked my rhymes, but the only thing I needed was some beats. So I had taken a couple of attempts of trying to connect with some producers, but the production that I had um, gotten, I never was able to hear it before it was released. And when I finally heard it, is that it sounded, you know, not up to professional standards. So I was in the need of a producer. So when I seen Mark in the paper, I said, well, you know, I'm going to take a, um, a shot at writing him and asking him, you know, with the Beat Lab, hip-hop producers, maybe he knows a producer that can help me in, you know, making some beats for my acapella rhymes. So I wrote to him in, I want to say, maybe August or September of 2019. And after a couple of months, he responded back. And, you know, we just began a, a correspondence back and forth letters and the first letter that he sent me was a, on a postcard and he just mentioned that he had listened to some of my music on SoundCloud and thought as well that I needed some beats and that you know he might be able to introduce me to some producers and that's how our friendship began. Wonderful yeah. Um, and um, I'll add a little bit um, you know at first of course you know when uh, you know, we were just uh, corresponding. And when I got the letter from him, um, I didn't know what to do with it. And that's why it took me a long time to respond because I didn't know who Aline was. And I got this letter that stamped, uh, you know, central prison. And uh, I see this letter saying, you know, I, you know, I want to introduce myself. I'm on death row and I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to find someone to help me with my music. And so I really had to think for a while, like, what, what would it mean to, to respond? What would it mean to say yes? Um, and, uh, and I did, and, uh, you know, in part because I really felt his sincerity come through uh, this letter, also in part just out of curiosity. I was like, this sounds fascinating. I, you know, I, this sounds like a really interesting project, so let's see what happens. And I did know a lot of producers and I thought someone might want to work with him. And um, I mean, this never had to develop into a friendship, but it did. And, um, and I think it's just because we clicked in terms of personalities and interests, even though we come from very different backgrounds in all sorts of ways. And um, I just remember very clearly uh, a letter. Uh, we were mostly uh, writing back and forth with some calls he wrote a letter uh, and signed it, your friend. And, uh, and so I thought, well, let me just ask him, what does that mean? Um, I said, you know, I'm glad you said that because I kind of think of you as my friend too. What does it mean to you? And, um, and I think uh, the fact that we're friends is actually really important to my scholarship because um, I don't think I could have Aline's trust to work with him in the way that I do if I weren't friends with him or if he didn't see me as a friend. And he defined uh, for me a friend as someone who has your back, someone who you can trust. And so it's, uh, I really can't separate my friendship with him from the scholarly work and kind of musical work that we do. Yeah. Aleem, what was the, you know, after this initial exchange of a letter and a postcard, what was the kind of correspondence like with Mark? Where did you get to the point where you felt that you were trust trusting of him and, and wanted to call him your friend? Yeah, you know, um, it was just kind of a natural evolution. It's like Mark mentioned is, you know, 
I guess, you know, our personality just kind of clicked. And, you know, he started, he would write me and just prompt me with certain questions. And I did have a desire at the time to share, you know, about the process of recording this music because I did feel like it was something that was important. Um, to my knowledge, no one ever in um, the history of recorded music has recorded any music on death row. So I did feel like that it was important. So sometimes Mark would just, you know, prod me with questions about, you know, you know, the process and, and then, you know, and then the natural evolution of things is I just began to start confiding in him and talking about other things outside of music. And it got to a point where I was, you know, I was like, you know, I want to know a little bit about more, a little more about you as well. And when I seen, you know, the willingness to reciprocate and the, you know, to open up and share things about his life as well, is that it just continued to reinforce uh, a, a relationship of trust. And, you know, um, I just told him, you know, friendship to me, you know, means, you know, having your back is that I know. And it, and that you can know is that you know I'm always I'm gonna always have your back. So, you know that's kind of how it evolved from my perspective. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, part of it was you know my kind of natural curiosity as a scholar, or just natural curiosity, and then my scholarly um, inclinations kicked in, and so I just asked him. I mean, I first asked. I said, "Do you mind if I ask you some questions?" And he said, "Sure." And so I just kept sending questions like, what is music like on death row? How do you, how do you make music? Are there other rappers? Um, you know, what is, uh, and, you know, I learned about uh, his life. And so I'd ask other questions like, do you celebrate, how do you celebrate Ramadan, uh, you know, in uh, at central prison and, um, you know, and so on and so on. And I think our kind of, um, you know, he could have been annoyed by that or just not responded, but, um, but Aleem is just incredibly uh, intellectually curious about things and loves to learn and read. So I think that's that's our you know commonality and of course hip hop. And I think that's uh, for me that's also part of the story. Yeah. So um, Mark shared some of the the really eloquent letters that you exchanged back and forth. And at one point he asks you what hip hop means to you. And Aleem, you write, "Hip hop is my life." Can you talk a little bit about what that means, why hip-hop is your life, and kind of your history with hip-hop as well? Yeah, you know, like, uh, my life and, and so many of my memories are, you know, marked by hip-hop. You know, as I mentioned in, in that letter that you speak of, is that, you know, I can often remember, you know, the first time I had a bomber jacket, or, you know, the time when I used to go to sports world and break dance, or, you know, the first time I had my first record and the turntable that my mom bought me for, it was either my birthday or Christmas, it was a little Welcome Back Carter uh, turntable. And so many things that are connected with my memories are marked by hip hop. You know, I can, you know, mark a day and time by saying what year this song came out. So I have an idea of where I was at, what I was doing, you know, what year was, you know, such and such was going on by, based on certain songs that came out. So. You know, that's how I've marked time throughout my life. But in addition, is that it's like my personality, you know, been shaped by this culture of hip hop. So the way that I talk, you know, if I'm, you know, chilling with my homeboys, you know, and the, the slang that we use, you know, is all, you know, a byproduct of what I've learned from hip hop. My posture, the way that I, you know, move or the way that I gesticulate, you know, um, 
just, you know, everything, the way that I walk, you know, it might be, you know, have a little bop to it or some swag or whatever. So all of this is shaped by hip hop, my fashion, you know, um, even, you know, in the way that I, you know, might wear my shoes, maybe untied, or, you know, if I might wear my jumpsuit a little baggy, you know, it's all a part of, you know, how hip hop has affected me. And so even to like my internal dialogue that I hear that, you know, that, you know, that voice in your head that talks to you, it's got a hip hop voice, you know, occasionally I can switch modes and get into an intellectual voice, but most of the time, it's that hip-hop voice talking to me. And so, you know, when I say hip-hop is my life, is that, you know, I can't really see no disconnect in how I separate who I am from, you know, the way that hip-hop has impacted me. And you've been in, in prison now for more than 25 years, right? What has your relationship been to hip-hop since since your imprisonment as well? From a, um, a creative aspect, Cause you know, I'm a rapper, I'm an MC. I've been writing rhymes since I was 13, but since I've been in prison is that, you know, I've really buckled down and honed some of my um, skills as a writer, as an MC. And, you know, that primarily took place while I was doing time in solitary. I did about 10 years in solitary and I had a stretch where I did seven and a half years straight. And it was during that particular time that, you know, I began to, you know, use um, rap use writing uh, hip-hop lyrics as a form of therapy. And you have 60 seconds remaining. That became that, you know, to develop a, a huge part of my early catalog as a writer. Yeah. Well, I know you're about to be disconnected, Aleman, so you'll call back hopefully and we'll keep talking. Hello again. Hello. So... Um, I wanted to ask about, you know, you, you have this exchange of letters and you're hoping Mark can help you find a producer to make beats um, for you to rap over. So how did that process unfold? How did you kind of find a producer and what did that collaboration kind of first look like and sound like? So, yeah, um, Mark connected me with Nick Neutron, in my opinion, one of the greatest producers I ever heard. And... Um, you know, he initially, I guess, reached out to Nick and on my end is that he made a connection and sent me Nick's new, uh, Nick's phone number. And I called him and talked to him a little bit. And, you know, initially it was kind of shaky, the ground of us just establishing some type of method of recording because all this was new, not only to me, but to Nick as well. And so, you know, we had technology boundaries. We had you know, access to music and, and technology and resources and, you know, my ability to hear music, um, all of those things was boundaries. And, you know, just due to the process of just my determination and a little bit of, you know, um, ingenuity is that we kind of developed the process where we was able to work through Zoom, which was something that I kind of figured out because, one of the big obstacles is I had made a lot of, you know, trial and errors, experimentation, because one of the initial hurdles was how can I hear the music so that I can rap in time? Many of my acapella rhymes is, you know, Michael Betts would post on SoundCloud for me, but I learned from what producers would later tell me is that we kind of got an internal rhythm so that my internal rhythm might fluctuate. Sometimes I might go a little faster, 
Sometimes I might go a little slower, although I'm thinking I'm rapping in perfect time. Mm. So it was, you know, it was difficult for them to take my acapella and just put it on to a track. But then I've also learned, in addition to that, that's something, that's something, the element that they could have worked around. But because they don't know specifically where I'm coming in on the beat, it's awkward. And so it was a communication barrier as well, not being able to explain, you know, if I'm coming in on the one or the two or the three or the two and a half or whatever, you know, where I'm starting off with my vocal there on the track. So it made it, you know, almost impossible for a producer to figure out how to put my lyrics on a time track. So those was all obstacles that we had to try to overcome. So I was watching TV. It was around the time of the pandemic. I met Nick. Um, I talked to him probably about the first time, maybe November, December of 2019. But we didn't really start, you know, working until about January of 2020. And then after that, COVID happened. And it was during COVID that Zoom became one of the huge mediums for people to continue to have business meetings as well as engage with friends and family, et cetera. And so it was on TV all the time. You know, you would see these, you know, shows or, you know, these little uh, broadcasts where they got a Zoom meeting and somebody got a filter on and got their face looking like a cat or something. And they don't know how to turn it off. And they're on a group meeting. And, you know, this is funny for all of the people that's watching it. But to me, I was looking at it from the perspective of, man, Maybe I can use this type of technology to figure out how to overcome these hurdles for recording. Maybe I can hear the beat. So I'm thinking if it's possible to do these, you know, group chats like this on Zoom, then perhaps a person who has music on their computer can allow everybody on the Zoom uh, chat to hear the music simultaneously. And if that's the case, maybe it can isolate a vocal as well. So just my thought process about what the possibilities might be, I had those conversations with uh, Michael Betts as well as Nick, and it turned out to be that that was the solution that enabled me to be able to hear the beat. So then Nick could play the beat to me straight from Zoom, and I could hear it through the phone. And then I could rap right into in time. But there's a, there's a time delay. So, you know, it might be a one second or a half a second or whatever it is between the time that the beat is played and the time I hear it. And then there's another time delay from the time that I speak to the time that the listener hears. So that creates another disconnect. So that when I'm rapping, although I'm rapping in time, it's not synchronized with the beat. So then we had to figure out how to explain which was a hurdle for me because I hadn't been educated in the etiquette of a, a recording studio and working with a producer. So I didn't know the language. I didn't know how to explain what the one is or, you know, what vocal I'm coming in on or what, what bar it is or what beat I'm coming in. So that was a communication barrier. So it was just a, a continual process of figuring it out and developing this communication language until things began to, you know, continue to unfold and I think Nick Neutron is like I said he's one of the greatest producers I ever heard but also for having the patience and you know the, the, the persistence to continue to work to figure this out despite all of the obstacles and 
you know, we've made some, you know, pretty impressive accomplishments since then. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I've heard a lot of your songs and they're fantastic. And the, the process behind it is really fascinating. Mark, can you talk a little bit about once kind of Aleem's recorded these and he's worked with Nick, how you were working to kind of get Aleem's music out into the world? Uh, well, there's there's a whole team uh, that uh, that works with Aleem and uh, we call ourselves the Aleem team. And um, so uh, we all have different roles. Um, so Nick is a producer. Um, uh, Michael Betts is a documentarian who does uh, audio. Um, I'm, you know, the scholar, but also a kind of, uh, I would call myself an executive producer because I raise money uh, for, you know, for these projects. Uh, we also have Tessie Castillo, who's a journalist, um, and uh, also um, a rapper named Wordsmith uh, kind of joined in a little later. Um, he's from Baltimore. So it's really the whole team that has, that has worked on this in various ways. Um, you know, we use different platforms, uh, Facebook, um, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. Um, but I will say that is probably the Aleem team's weak point is, um, is in terms of, of promotion and social media. And um, so this is something that we're actually actively working on. And we just brought on someone who's a student at UNC who uh, specializes in advertising and knows uh, TikTok and uh, social media platforms very well. And actually, I was uh, raised money to hire a professional uh, PR firm for the book and the, um, and the album. So I will say it's been a bunch of non-experts um, try. You know, we're all good at various aspects, uh, you know, and in, in we each have our strengths, but... Um, where we're, where we need to uh, get some professional help is in getting the word out. And that is actually something that we're working on now. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the book in a minute, but Aleem, could you also talk like just a little bit about kind of like what musical life is like for you in prison? Like how do you listen to music? Um, where do you kind of get your ideas for your raps? Where do you kind of practice them? That kind of thing. Okay. Um, so, yeah. You know, my musical access has been extremely limited for the vast majority of my imprisonment. So I've been in prison for 30 years now. And for at least the first um, 29 of those years is that the only access that I've had to music has been AM, FM radio. Um, never had a cassette player, never had, you know, a, a record player, never had a CD, never had MP3 player. It was just the AM FM radio until 2022 when we were able to get tablets. So my access to music was just from whatever was played on the radio. So they gave me a very, very small window of what music was available out there. So small that I, you know, I had some, you know, extreme distortions about, you know, the type of hip hop that was being made because I only had access to, to so, you know, little, um, that was available. So, but in 2022, you know, the prisons in North Carolina, they began implementing the tablet program. And so with the tablets, we do have access to more music. We have a music app on the tablet, a uh, Stingray music app that gives us a broader selection of music. And although I can't specifically choose what song I want to listen to, I can, 
you know, pick a station and just listen to what is on that station. I can skip if I don't like that song, et cetera. So that's been a, a huge evolution, a giant leap from, you know, the limited access that I've had to music to a much greater pool of music that I now have access to. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how my access to music has been. As far as my creativity and, you know, what has, like, inspired me and, you know, how I have, you know, come up with ideas about what to write about, you know, most of it, as I mentioned, initially was therapeutic. So a lot of my, my early music was talking about me, my life, my thoughts, my experiences, my feelings. It was giving me an opportunity to figure myself out, figure out, you know, things that troubled me, a lot of emotional trauma and psychological trauma that I had dealt with that I may have suppressed. And so just to be creative and to bring it outside of myself and put it into an artistic way, it helped me to cope with those things. It helped me to, you know, um, express it and, you know, um, be able to recite it to myself so that it become, you know, easier to cope with. And, you know, um, but then eventually, gradually, is that I was inspired by some of the hip-hop that I had been exposed to earlier growing up in life, as well as to some of the hip-hop that I've heard since I've been in prison on the radio. So, like, artists like, you know, Common, for instance, I used to love her, is that when I first heard that song, I just loved the way that he used metaphor to, you know, describe hip-hop as, you know, like a, a, a young girl that he fell in love with. And then, you know, throughout the whole song is that he's making this metaphor, but you find out that he's actually talking about hip-hop. So I, you know, when I heard that song for the first time, it gave me a, 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 a view and a, and, a, and a capability in saying, hey, man, that I can use this art to do things that I never imagined. That You know, it don't just happen to be raps about I'm this, I'm that, braggadocia, but it can also be something that's artful and creative. But then I was heavily influenced by other rappers like Chuck D or KRS-One who were more about, you know, educating or putting a message into their uh, music. So, you know, it was things like this that, you know, I've, you know, strongly gravitated towards and wanted to write about. So a lot of the, you know, early music that I wrote about was things that talked about imprisonment or talked about, you know, the political, um, you know, effects of incarceration or consequences of incarceration and, and things that just dealt with my unique experience of being on death row because for a huge part, as I felt like this was a, a subject matter that hadn't been discussed in hip-hop specifically from someone who lived it. So that was, that's what drove a lot of my creativity. And I know in prior to you, you receiving the tablets in September 2021 was the first time you were able to actually hear one of your produced songs on the radio rather than through the phone. What was that? Do you remember what that experience was like of, of hearing your music on the radio? You have 60 seconds remaining. Uh, so maybe we'll table that question. Yeah, you know, it was mind-blowing. I mean, it was, that experience was just so, like, surreal, but it was also chaotic at the same time. Um, you know, I had, you know, let share the word with a few people that, you know, the song will be on the radio. So, you know, those few people shared it with a few more people and, you know, those few people shared it with a few more. So it was like everybody was listening. And in addition at the time is that I had actually called into the radio station. And so they had me on the radio while the song was being played. So I, did, I didn't really want to be on the radio. I wasn't, you know, had the luxury of being in, in my cell, listening to the song in my headphones so that I could hear it. So I didn't have that full effect 
of hearing the song for the first time that it was played on the radio. But the second time it was played on the radio, that's exactly what happened. I was in my cell. I had nobody, no distractions, nobody talking to me, nothing. And to hear my music for the first time, it was just like, man, I can't believe that, you know, not only did we accomplish this, but it sounded so good because, you know, I had never heard it before. So all, all, all of the renditions that I have heard was just through the phone. So I always had, you know, a limited perception of how the music actually sounded. There was so many, you know, aspects of the production and the beat, you know, that I had never heard before because it just don't translate when you listen to the phone. So hearing all of that, the pristine quality of the production, I was just blown away by Nick Neutron's production. First of all, I was like, wow, this is amazing. But then in addition, that's me. I'm, that's me, and I'm on the radio. And, you know, I, I had always feared that the vocal quality, because it was on the phone, would be so inferior to it. It would be, it would be garbled. It would be... You know, it would sound like some garage music or it would sound like something done on a Fisher-Price toy or something. But it wasn't that bad. And it, and it actually, you know, sounded intentional because of the song uh, being, it was live on Death Row. And, you know, the concept of the song, it sounded intentional. And it sounded really good. So I, I felt so pleased. I felt so proud. I felt so, you know, accomplished that we had actually done something. And I got to hear it for the first time. And you know, it was just a, a huge moment of, you know, great joy that, you know, I'll never be able to forget. I mean, I, I, I know I've heard other artists talk about the first time that they ever heard themselves on the radio. And, you know, I got that experience, too. And it's just it's something that I just didn't, never envisioned, especially from coming in prison and being on death row to hear myself on the radio and to see that, you know, we was able to create something despite all of the obstacles and it sounded good. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, you have this developing friendship over the last few years and these collaborations. Um, but there's also a book that you are working on together. Mark, can you talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how a more traditional scholarly project came out of this and, and what the goal is with, with this book and what it is? So, uh, you know, I got that first letter uh, from Aleem um, in uh, August 2019, and we started up a correspondence. And uh, I, every letter that arrived was, uh, I was like a, an event. I would, you know, he would tell me, or you know, that a letter was coming, and I would, you know, run out to the mailbox and get it, and and you know, for you know, read it right away, uh, because every letter is just so beautifully written and, you know, evocative. And I almost felt like I was seeing uh, through his eyes because the, because of his, his really, you know, kind of vivid um, writing. And uh, as I was reading this, I just kept thinking, I, you know, I want other people to see this. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, of course, I wasn't going to share things without his permission. And I did uh, ask his permission. Uh, there were a few things uh, specifically about music, where I asked if I could share them with students, and the students were were really taken um, with uh, with these letters. They're like, you know, 
that's one of those most moving things I've ever heard. I remember one of my students saying. Um, so actually, the very first time I visited uh, Aleem in person, I said, "I just want to let you know I'm I'm preserving these letters. Um, you know, I'm scanning them, I'm copying them, I'm logging them. I think they're really valuable." Um, you know, part of this is me as a scholar, but also I just think these are amazing letters and I think they should be preserved. And, um, and then eventually I pitched the idea. I said, well, what do you think about making this into a book? So um, I don't know, maybe Aline wants to, wants to take it from there. But uh, uh, I do remember his response at first was he just kind of stared at me and didn't say anything. Um, but um, yeah, Aline, do you want to say, say, take it from there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember the, you know, the actual word that you used is that, you know, you said that you view my letters as documents that needed to be preserved. And it was that word document because I never imagined or never thought about, you know, a letter that I wrote as being a document, but to a document to me, it gave it some type of, you know, like importance, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, um, like, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a document. The Constitution is a document that's preserved, you know, for, um, you know, for progeny, for the future to see and to access. So to use that type of phraseology in talking about a letter that I wrote, it made my words and my thoughts seem so more important than I had, you know, imagined that they may be. So I never wrote, intended to, to, to write a book. And so when Mark mentioned to me the idea of, you know, hey, you know, you've written me X amount of letters and, you know, I look, you know, I, I scan each one of them and, you know, it's so many word counters, et cetera, right? You know, that's a whole book right there. And it just blew my mind because this was never my intention. You know, I never set out with the intention to write a book, you know. And so when Mark mentioned it, is that I was, you know, kind of like, okay, all right. Well, yeah, let's, let's write a book. But that wasn't something that I was pursuing because it was never something that I set out to do. So it just became as like a byproduct of our relationship and, you know, our correspondence. So even though it began to, you know, gradually build momentum, to me, it was still a secondary thing or even maybe even lower than secondary because my goal was to try to create this music and as a byproduct of that, to try to generate attention for people that's wrongfully convicted and innocent on death row, such as my friend Stacy Sabor Tyler, who you know is a, a huge inspiration for the work that I've been doing with this music. So that's been my original goal. That's what I've been striving for. So it was never my intention to write a book. So I never really, you know, invested a lot of thought in it. I was like, yeah, sure, let's put a book together, and. You know, it wasn't until much later when, you know, Mark actually sent me a manuscript of what was going to be in the book that now I'm reading the letters that I have written. Because once I write a letter and I send it out, you know, I forgot what I say. Maybe, you know, three or four days later, maybe a week later, I don't remember every word that I say or the topics of discussions, et cetera. But then seeing it in a manuscript, then it was like, wow. This hmm. is a book. Wow. And then it became a lot more real to me. And, you know, now I am actually kind of excited about the idea of, man, we got a book coming together. So that's, that's my experience with it. 
Mark, how are you thinking about kind of the reflecting on the the potential, you know, ethical issues that a project like this raises, the power dynamics, being a full professor at a prestigious university, working with, um, you know, a collaborator who is imprisoned? How, how, how have you kind of pondered that and, and grappled with that? Well, I think about it all the time, uh, but I would say more importantly, I talk about it all the time with Aline. So um, I would say in terms of my you know, scholarly life, this is the, you know, one of the most important things, or maybe I'll just say the most important thing I've done, because um, it has really challenged uh, my, you know, my thinking as a scholar, my thought about what a scholar is and can do, um, what it means to collaborate, but also just thinking about these very difficult um, uh dynamics, the, the power dynamic, it is a very asymmetrical power relationship. And yet as friends, um, you know, we're, we're equals as friends, you know, I'm, uh, you know, if you're, you don't have a friendship where one person is more important than the other, it doesn't work that way. But at the same time, um, you know, I have privilege, I have status, I have funding, I have connections. Um, but I get so much out of my work with Aline that uh, in no way is this me, you know, doing favors. So uh, I would describe this in kind of scholarly terms as, as continuous informed consent. Um, so I'm, it's not just that I got informed, you know, I just asked for his, you know, permission to do X. I'm constantly going back to him and, and asking because things are always changing and evolving. And um, one of the really uh, kind of um, both, you know, challenging and fascinating aspects of this is where, where our power, where the kind of relationship, uh, the, that power asymmetry calls attention to itself. And, um, you know, one example is that uh, I was, uh, I, I connected him with a composer who was looking to hire someone to write uh, some rap for a, a musical. And, um, and it seemed very promising. And Aline was really thrilled about the possibility. But then it turned out this guy was, was really not, uh, not serious about this and was, uh, at least from my standpoint, or actually, I think from Aline's standpoint, also exploiting him. And, uh, but then um, Aline wrote me a letter that was really powerful that said, we are not equal. And that even though I know I'm being exploited, I can't, I don't have the luxury of not being exploited. And, um, and from my standpoint, that was a really eye-opening, but also very challenging situation because how do I, how do I collaborate with someone who is essentially asking me to allow himself to be exploited? Um, you know, how do I recognize his agency but also treat him as a friend. And, um, and I mean, the answer is there isn't a good answer, but if you, but we talk about it. So, you know, and I will say, you know, in my teaching, because I'm also teaching a class uh, and Aleem has called in a number of times, we talk about these issues. So part of this also has been, um, you know, struggling kind of openly with, uh, with students and other scholars about the ethics of uh, working with um, incarcerated people. Hmm. 
Aleem, do you have any thoughts to add about that? Yeah, I, 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 exactly. That's what I want to piggyback on a couple of things, right? Is that um, that's one of the things that I do admire and respect about Mark so much is because he's constantly asking me, do I have, um, you know, does he have my permission to do this or does he have my permission to do that? And it's like, you know, I feel like I've given him blanket permission up front. Hey, man, you know, whatever you need, you know, you feel free to do so. I, I trust you. But it's, you know, it's not like that he's going to take advantage. He's shown me that, you know, I'm not going to just say, well, you told me I could do whatever pretty much and just do it. That he'll come back and remind me and, you know, give me an opportunity to make a decision. You have 60 seconds remaining. That I hadn't really, you know, foreseen. You know, like I had told him before, when we was talking about the manuscript, about the book, and I said, man, you know, I ain't worried about it. Put it together however you think it's fit. I trust your judgment, et cetera. I don't have no problems with it. And he said, no, I want you to read it and see if, you know, this is what you want us to publish. And so when he did send it to me is that I had, I realized, hey, I'm glad he did. I had some reservations about some things because the way that I... You have 30 seconds remaining. Just intended for Mark and not intended, intended for you know, an uh, audience greater than him. So that just reinforced my trust in him and his ability to, you know, and his willingness to, you know, give me um, uh, opportunities to, you know, express some type of um, opinion about things. In addition, Mark, you said that um, uh, uh, about the exploitation, is that what I said is I didn't have the luxury of being angry. <laughs> you got cut off. Um, he'll call back. Uh, you there, Lee? I don't know if you had any more to add about what you were saying or if that was the end of your thought. Yeah, I do. I do. I just wanted to say, you know, like uh, Mark was expressing about the, the situation when he introduced me to the composer is that, you know, Mark actually said um, when he was, you know, just speaking, he said that I said that I didn't have the luxury of not being exploited. But what I actually said was, you know, Mark was pretty upset about the way that that situation played out. And, you know, I didn't feel the same type of anger. And I told him is that I didn't have the luxury of being angry because where I'm at is that, you know, I, I don't have the freedom to express anger. You know, where I'm at is anger is punished. If you display any type of anger or, you know, displeasure with something, then, you know, you're punished for it. So I don't have that, that luxury. But to see Mark's anger on my behalf and him expressing it to me, as well as to the composer, is that that really reinforced again the fact that this dude really got my back. And this is what friendship was about. This is what I told him how I saw friendship. So he was willing to go to bat and express the fact that, you know, I'm upset, I'm angry with you on the way that you, you know, tried to deal with this situation regarding Aline. And, you know, that really meant a lot to me, even though I felt like in my situation that I would have, you know, dealt with the indignity of, you know, how the situation was uh, played out, the exploitation or seeming exploitation that may have happened and, have, and would have still been willing to participate. Nonetheless, is that my friend didn't feel that the way that I was handled was worthy of my dignity. And so that, you know, that meant a lot to me. And, you know, it was a huge disappointment, but at the same time, is that, as I mentioned to Mark, is that I, I, would, I would have still done, this, done it the same way either way. Yeah, wow. How would you say 
that this friendship has changed each of you, both as people and also as, you know, musicologists and, and musicians? Um, well, I'll, I'll go ahead. I mean, in terms of just, I mean, it's it's intertwined, the personal and the scholarly. I mean, just personally, um, I was always uh, against the death penalty, and I was aware, at least to a certain extent, of the injustices within in the criminal system. So um, I w- my mind wasn't changed about that, but I had just a, I had only a superficial understanding. Um, and knowing someone um, who's living this, and uh, I really got a much better understanding of of what's going on, and just just really how how terrible uh, this uh, system is. I mean, we are, you know, torturing, you know, millions of, of people and exploiting them and their families. Um, I've also, uh, you know, I've been someone who has kind of uh, reflected on privilege, but this has deepened that. Um, so it's just made me much more aware of, of uh, you know, of reality of politics, but also I've become, you know, i I have a new friend and uh, my wife was saying, oh, it's so nice you have a new friend. I mean, just on the, you know, just on that aspect, you know, has nothing to do with uh, anything scholarly. I've gotten to know his mother, his wife, his brother, um, you know, it's it's all, you know, it's affected me personally. As a scholar, um, I think, you know, it's something I'm starting to develop, a, a kind of ethics of friendship, um, meaning that when I think about how to, how to act in uh, how this relationship will best work. It's not as a relationship between a scholar and a subject, if you want to put it that way, but as a relationship between two friends. And I think I have been able to hold myself to a kind of higher ethical standard by asking not what would an ethical scholar do, but what would a friend do? And so it's really informed the way I think about scholarly ethics. Yeah, you know, um, that's, 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 you know, beautifully put. Um, you know, from, from my perspective is that, you know, I always kind of look at what Mark was just saying from the perspective of, you know, how I benefit from my friendship. So to hear and to feel that, you know, feel that validation that I have something of value to offer to a, a friend to to this relationship, you know, definitely is you know reassuring, and it it, it 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 you know because of my my imprisonment, because of you know my experiences in life, the crimes that I've been convicted of and that I'm guilty of, is that you know it definitely you know marks me in a way with, with shame and you know a feeling of um, not being worthy of other people's recognition. So to have someone that, you know, does not have any obligation or, you know, such as my family or et cetera, to extend, you know, an offer of friendship and genuinely find value in something that I have to give, especially when, you know, I've been made to feel like I have very little to offer is extremely validating. From my perspective, is that I've I've learned so much from Mark. You know, just being and having proximity to the world that he has access to. He's taught me so many things. You know about how the way things work 
And, you know, I, you know, I get the privilege and the benefit of, you know, peeping into a mind of a scholar and saying, you know, what is, what is this like? Or, you know, what is, what do you do when, when, when this situation happens? Or, you know, um, how do these functions actually, you know, pan out? You know, it gives me that access to a world that, you know, under normal conditions as a person like me would never be able to imagine what it would be like to be in that world. So it's funny because a lot of times we might talk and, you know, I say, you know, uh, you know, maybe one day I'm going to have my cardigan on and we, we sit together and, you know what I'm saying, you know, smoke our pipe and, and, and talk about intellectual endeavors. And, you know, and he'll tease me and say, yeah, you know, because he called me a scholar too. So it's just, it's, 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 it's awesome, man, to just be able to have that proximity and the benefit from, you know, someone like Mark. Wow. Well, thank you. Uh, before we wrap up, I did, Mark mentioned uh, before you logged on that you have a, you've been thinking a lot about uh, rap versions of country songs. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that or give us a sample if you're willing. Uh, it sounds like a fun, cool project. Oh, yeah, man. So that's, you know, that's something that's like really, really fresh is, you know, I've been a country music fan for, you know, since about 2006. Um, you know, I, I stumbled upon it at the time. I just kind of felt in, in my life at the time that hip hop was hip hop was a little, you know, stuck in the mud. I wasn't very inspired by what I was hearing on the radio, and I just wanted something with a little bit more substance. I was listening for something that you know spoke to me, and so just you know traveling down the dial tune, I stumbled upon some country music. And but at first I went to rock, but you know I learned that rock was a little bit more about the instruments than it was about the lyrics, at least from what I heard. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lyricist. I'm an MC. I, I want to hear, you know, messages. I want to hear words. I want to hear stories. So I stumbled on country around 2006, like I said, and I just felt so moved by some of the country music, the things that they were, be, they were being said. So that inspired me in a huge way because I wanted to take some of those stories, some of those messages, the themes and the concepts, the creativity and how they told those stories and exposing the hip-hop audiences because I felt like they were great stories, and a great story is a great story regardless of what audience it is. Mm. But I knew that there was a boundary, you know, with the sound, is that, you know, hip-hop audiences are attracted to, you know, 808s, heavy bass lines, you know, uh, big drums, and not necessarily fiddles and, you know, banjos. So, you know, just the instrumentation was a barrier. So I wanted to do something that could expose those stories to hip-hop audiences. So it just came upon me recently. I said, what if I could take a country song and do a cover in, you know, a hip-hop style that might take a great song and translate it and expose it to a hip-hop audience? So this is fresh. I mean, brand new. It's not even a week old in my conception. And to my knowledge, I don't know of anybody that's done that thus far. So in my first stab at it, I took one of my favorite country songs by Montgomery Gentry called Lucky Man. And I, you know, interpreted it into a hip-hop version. So I'll give you a few bars of that. Please. It goes like this. I have days when I hate my job, this little town in the whole world too. Last Sunday when the Panthers lost, Lord, it put me in a bad mood. I have moments when I curse the rain. They complain when the sun's too hot. I look around at what everyone has, and I forget about all I've got. 
But I know I'm a lucky, lucky, lucky man. God's giving me a pretty fair hand. Got a house and a piece of land. Two dollars in the coffee can. My old truck, truck, truck still running good. My ticket, tick, tick, ticket, like I say it should. I got supper in the oven. Got a good woman's loving and got one more day to be my little kid's dad. So Lord knows I'm a lucky man. I know God loves me, man. Every time I need my family, they run up and hug me, man. Sometimes I have my moments when life seems ugly, man. But when I count my blessings, I feel so lucky, man. Got some friends who will be here fast. I could call them any time of day. Got a brother who's got my back. Got a mama who I swear is a saint. Got a brand new rod and reel. Got a full week off this year. Dad had a close call last spring. It's a miracle he's still here. But I know I'm a lucky, lucky, lucky man. I got God's giving me a pretty, pretty fair hand. Got a house and a piece of land. Few dollars in the coffee can. My old truck, truck, truck still running good. My ticket, tick, tick, ticket, like you say it should. I got supper with my other. Got a good woman's oven and got one more day to be my little kid's dad. So Lord knows I'm a lucky man. So that's just a little iteration of a new song I've been working on, and I actually just recorded that today with my gum, uh, with my uh, producer Nick Neutron. So maybe it'll actually get heard someday on the uh, on the internet. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. That was amazing. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Aleem. Thank you. And thank you, Mark, as well. Um, yeah, thank you, Will. It's been great talking with you. And um, yeah, um, yeah. And thanks, Aleem, for making the time. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. All right. Peace. Thank you to Aleem Braxton and Mark Katz for that fascinating and important conversation. You can read more about their work and listen to Aleem's music on our website, soundexpertise.org. As always, our inbox is open. Email soundexpertise00 at gmail if you have any questions or thoughts about the show, or find me on Twitter or Instagram at seatedovation. I'd also be really grateful if you left a review of our show on Apple Podcasts. That will help people find the program. And as always, many thanks to D. Edward Davis for his production work. You can check out his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. I'm grateful to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. This episode of Sound Expertise was recorded at the National Foreign Language Center with support from University of Maryland's School of Music. Next week on Sound Expertise, curating music at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So it wasn't just about the big artists or the big names that we wanted to get at the community level, we wanted to get at the local level. All of this is about storytelling and how music has functioned in the African-American experience. See you then.